All right. A couple of things tonight uh, in terms of announcements. First of all, we have men's prayer breakfast this Saturday, 7.30. And then we'll have a um, deacon's meeting after following that. And then uh, on the 28th, uh, Scott Stripling will be here, and he's the director of our, he's the dig director of Shiloh Excavations, and he's going to talk about several things. And also, I'm sure he will give us an update on what's going on with the Palestinian Authority in relation to Joshua's altar. Have y'all read about that? Y'all keep up with current events at all. So the Palestinian Authority got caught building a a major road up to the area where Joshua's altar is. And then it was discovered they had plans to get rid of everything that's there and build a subdivision. So the Israeli Antiquities Authority is uh, raising cane, so who knows what's going to happen with all of that. So hopefully he'll give us an update on that. Also, we have sign-up sheets out in the Fellowship Hall for the Fort Bend County Fair Evangelism. And then Mitch Glazer, who's the uh, president of Chosen People Ministries, will be here on Thursday night, October 5th. Now, I didn't plan this because I'm, I'm here then, but you got to grab these people when they're here. And it just happens to fit with all of this evangelism that's going on. So Mitch will be here uh, to speak on October uh, the 5th. It's Thursday night Bible class. And then the Evangelism and Apologetic Seminar led by Builders of Israel on Saturday from 9 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. with a lunch break in there, and then the picnic for Saturday. So when it rains, it pours, and I found out there's another major event up at the Lanier Library on that um, Saturday, October the 7th, that I would love to go to. But you can only be in three places at one time. I can't figure out how to be at four places at one time. So we just have to miss some things. So that's what's going on. The other thing is to pray for and let you know this is uh, Charles Musanda. He is the pastor of Gilgal Church in Livingston, Zambia. And so far, I think we've had four or 5,000. I think we've had four or 5,000 copies of the Promise Book um, printed over there. He translated it into Bimba. And so he's been distributing them. He just got through speaking the last month or so at a lot of smaller churches out in the areas. And uh, he, at every church, he left them with 200 uh, copies of the Promise Book. So that is really um, getting a lot of coverage. And we just uh, uh, sent uh, finances there so that they could print 2,000 more. And here is a... Um, uh, this isn't his church, but this is a one of the churches where he's speaking and uh, teaching the people about the promises. And so this, just that little little booklet, there are several of these pastors in these third world countries that are that don't have much training, but they're using that that booklet to teach in Sunday school or to teach in, in church. So we just thank God for that. All right, so let's um, have a few moments of silent prayer before we get started this evening, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray.
Uh, Father, we're so thankful that we have you to come to, that you are our rock, you are our strong tower, you are our fortress in the uh, worst of our lives, but you're always our defender at all times. You are our uh, mighty fortress. And Father, we're thankful for that. And we look at what goes on in the world today, what is happening uh, domestically in this nation and in many of the states, and we see governors who are just trampling on the constitutional uh, rights of, uh, of citizens in this country left and right. And, uh, Father, we just uh, pray that uh, we see the handwriting on the wall, that we are headed for, uh, for a tremendous collapse and chaos. And, Father, we pray that you would sustain us and that we might be faithful as witnesses uh, to you and to your word, that no matter what happens, that we can remain calm and, and stable. So, Father, we're thankful for all that you provide for us and all that you've given us and the opportunities to prepare people for what, whatever may come. But we know that living in the devil's world, it is, it is not necessarily good. And, Father, we pray for uh, David Dunn, his wife Misty. We pray for the doctors that you would just uh, uh, give them wisdom and skill as they treat him to correctly analyze the situation of what they can do. And, Father, we know that this will be for your glory. And so, Father, we just uh, put them in your hands and the church and his congregation, as well as for other pastors that we know, Kendall Weeks and Dan Ingram, and uh, there are several others that are in uh, uh, serious health situations and limited in um, if they're still able to teach and pastor, they've been limited because of health and age. So, Father, we pray for them and their congregations, and we're thankful that we can be um, a source of uh, teaching for so many. And, Father, we pray that tonight as we study your word that we would get greater confirmation of its accuracy and truthfulness and that we can understand it better to explain it to others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're going to have a quiz. Different ways to review things, and as I have been showing you, there are uh, there's the curriculum for interlocked, which is the main uh, main curriculum, and then there is the uh, curriculum for that's based for taking it down a couple of notches to uh, to children uh, ten years of age to about ten to fourteen, and so I was looking at that today, and it's got a uh, fifteen question quiz. So we're going to get a quiz because y'all should know all of this. I mean, I'm looking around here, and there's not a person in here that shouldn't get at least 14 of the 15 correct, okay? So we're not going to have you stand up and give the answers, but you should write down your answers so that you can keep your own score. So the first question, and they're all multiple guess. So tonight what we're looking at is lessons that we learned from the global flood. So all of this is basically designed to see how much you know about uh, the great flood of Noah. First question, whose idea was it to build the ark? Whose idea was it? Was it Noah's idea? Was it God's idea? Was it Mrs. Noah's idea, or was it Ham, one of his three sons? Which one of those had the idea to build the ark? So just write down your answer. We'll, we'll just go through the questions, and you just write down your answers, which one it is, and then I'll go back and review these. Uh, second question is, what was the ark for? What was its purpose? Uh, 
First, was it designed for some competition? Uh, second, was it a test to show how strong the wood was? Third, was it a new cruise liner for tourists? And four, was it built to save lives? Was it a design competition? Second, was it a test to see how strong the wood was? Third, was it a new cruise liner for tourists? Or fourth, was it designed to save lives? Third question, how many doors were there on the ark? None. Everyone climbed in through the roof. Second option, one. Third option, four. Two doors on each side. Fourth, eight. Four doors on each side. So that's your options. None, one, four, or eight. Fourth question, how many people got on the ark? One. Everyone in the world at that time. Number two, two did, Noah and his wife. Third option, eight, Noah and the three sons and all their wives. And fourth, none, the ark was only for animals. Okay, question number five. What kind of animals got into the ark? One, the animals that breathed air. Two, only the animals that were good for food. Third, all the land animals and fish. Fourth, none. God created new animals after the flood. Okay, one, air-breathing animals. Two, animals good to eat. Third, all the land animals and fish. And fourth, none. God created new animals after the flood. Sixth question. Why did God allow Noah to get into the ark? Why did he allow, why did God allow Noah to get into the ark? Number one, God liked how Noah looked. Number two, Noah paid God for the ticket to get into the ark. Third, Noah promised to look after the animals. And fourth, God said Noah was a righteous man. So number one, Noah looked good. Number two, Noah paid for a ticket to get on the ark. Three, Noah promised to look after the animals. And four, God said Noah was a righteous man. Seventh question, who closed the door on the ark? Number one, Noah and his sons, of course. Number two, God alone did. Number three, Noah hired some people to close it from the outside. And fourth, they left the door open for some fresh air. Obviously, with all those animals, you'd probably need fresh air. Okay, one, Noah and his sons. Two, God alone. Three, Noah hired some people to close the door. Four, they left the door open for fresh air. Number eight, Where did all the floodwaters come from? Number one, from the sky and also the ground. Number two, only from the sky in the form of rain and snow. Number three, only from underground springs that overflowed. Number four, from melting snow around the world. That would be the global warming answer. Okay, number one, from the sky and also the ground. Number two, only from the sky. 
Number three, only from underground springs. Number four, from melting snow around the world. Number nine, where did Noah keep all the fishes in the ark? Where did Noah keep all the fishes in the ark? Number one, he had special tanks built in the ark. Number two, the bottom of the ark was a gigantic aquarium. Number three, there were no fishes in the ark. Number four, they were in nets attached to the outside of the ark. Number one, special tanks were built into the ark. Number two, the bottom of the ark was a gigantic aquarium. Number three, there were no fishes in the ark. And number four, they were in nets attached to the outside of the ark. Ten, how long did the floodwaters cover the earth? Number one, 150 days. Number two, 40 days and 40 nights. Number three, who knows? The Bible doesn't say. Number four, 600 years. Okay, number one, 150 days. Number two, 40 days and 40 nights. Number three, who knows? The Bible doesn't say. Number four, 600 years. Number 11, how many mountains could Noah see during the flood? Just the t- Number one, just the tallest mountain at the time. Number two, a few of the very tall ones. Three, none. The whole world was underwater. Number four, he could see all the mountains. Number one, just the tallest mountain. Number two, a few of the very tall ones. Number three, none. The whole world was underwater. Number four, he could see all the mountains. Twelve, how long did Noah stay in the ark? One, 40 days and 40 nights. Two, about one whole year. Third, two weeks for 150 days. So number one, 40 days and 40 nights. Number two, about one whole year. Number three, two weeks. Number four, 150 days. Thirteen, how did the floodwaters subside? One, God stopped the rain. Two, God stopped the underground waters from rising. Three, God sent a wind to blow the earth dry. That was the origination of blow dry, by the way. And four, God did all of the above. He stopped the rain. He stopped the underground waters from rising. He sent a wind to blow the earth dry or all of the above. Okay. So we'll go back to one, and you can grade yourself. Whose idea was it to build the ark? I don't hear you. God, that's correct. Number one, uh, number two, God. Number two, what was the ark for? What was its purpose? To save life, number four. Number three, how many doors were there on the ark? One, number two. Number four, how many people got into the ark? Eight. Noah, three sons and their three wives. So that was eight of them. Five, what kind of animals got into the ark? What? One, the animals that breathed air. They can't eat animals until after they got off the ark. 
That's what that extra one of the seven was. I'm just kidding. Six, why did God allow Noah to get into the ark? Four, God said Noah was a righteous man. Seven, who closed the door of the ark? God alone did, number two. Eight, where did all the floodwaters come from? I can't hear you. From the sky and also the ground, number one. Nine, where did Noah keep all the fishes in the ark? What? Number three, no fishes. Ten, how long did the floodwaters cover the earth? What? One, 150 days. Eleven, how many mountains could Noah see during the flood? None. The whole world was underwater. Twelve, how long did Noah stay in the ark? Yeah, a year and a week. About one whole year. Thirteen, how did the flood waters subside? All of the above. Okay. All right. Hope you all did good on that. If not, you'll need to pay extra attention to the lesson tonight as we go forward. You know, you could probably ask those questions to all kinds of people. My favorite, my favorite question, which I did not put on the test, is how many people did Moses take on the ark with him? Yeah, that's a trick question. All right, last time we stopped just as we were approaching this. So tonight we're going to look at these five lessons that we learned from the global flood. Now, what's interesting about this is these lessons go through a lot of events in the Old Testament. So this establishes pretty close to a pattern that God follows. So the first lesson is that Grace precedes judgment. God is not this horrible, wicked, evil God who just seeks to pour out his wrath on people. He gives them a lot of time. He gives them, um, as the old saying goes, enough rope to hang themselves. He gives them grace before judgment so that they have time to respond to uh, his, his message. Second, it has to be a decision about who to save and who to judge. How are you going to determine? On what basis are you going to determine who is save, going to be saved and who is going to judge? And so this leads to a problem, which we'll look at later, and that is that the Bible teaches this kind of exclusivity, that there's only one way and that God does not provide multiple ways to get saved. And so it's very clear. And those who are saved are those in the ark, and those who are judged are those outside of the ark. So if the population is somewhere between 2 and 3 billion people, some people say maybe even more, then um, 
you a lot of people died and that shows that god was just he had given them so much time and we'll, we'll look at that as we go through it uh later on there's only one way of salvation the there's only one ark you can only survive the flood by getting on the ark there's only one door there's only one way to enter the door Again, this emphasizes exclusivity, and obviously God is too prejudiced to give people their own ideas. Fourth, the world changed. The global flood changed the entire planet. Everything changed. Nothing after the flood looked like, resembled, or remained of what was before the flood and how to be saved. And that is by faith, by trusting in God. That is how Noah Noah was saved. So we look at this first principle, which is uh, grace before judgment. And what we learn here is that uh, as um, God prepared to judge the world, he gave them a message of grace. And we see this in Jude chapter, I mean Jude verse 14 and Jude 15. I remember telling somebody to ask the question. I said, well, you go to Jude 15. They said, well, what verse? It's one chapter. Although with computer stuff now, because of the way they're set up, you have to put in, in some programs, you have to put in like Jude 1, whatever, because it is the first and only chapter. Okay, so Enoch. Enoch is the seventh from Adam. Now, how do we know that? We know that because that's what the genealogy says in Judge in uh, Genesis chapter 5. So again, this is New Testament evidence that the writers of the New Testament believed the accuracy of the genealogies in Genesis chapter uh, chapter 5 and later Genesis chapter 11. Enoch, this is the second individual. This is an Enoch in the line of Adam, not the Enoch that's in the line of, of uh, Cain. Now, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. That means he he made a prediction about a judgment. See, most people think that prophecy just means to foretell the future, but the focal point of all prophecy is judgment. God's just not telling the future to satisfy people's curiosity. So he prophesied about these men also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. And frequently the angels in the Old Testament are referred to as Kadashim, which is holy ones. And it just, it doesn't mean, or it's not restricted to the meaning of saints. It refers to the angels. They are set apart to God's service. And their purpose is, in verse 15, to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly, and, um, among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. 
That is the most ungodly verse in the Bible. Okay, so it is simply that, to uh, execute judgment on those who have rejected him. Now, we have just a chart here with just the uh, last part of the uh, Noah's uh, genealogy, and we see that Enoch, Enoch was the father of the man who lived longest in the Bible, Methuselah. But Methuselah died before his father did because Enoch was righteous. He walked with God and was not. He didn't. He did not die physically. Just walked right into heaven. He lived 365 years, and so from what we learned from Jude is that he was proclaiming this message uh, some what over 600 years before the flood, over seven or 800 years before the flood. He's proclaiming this message. So that is six or seven hundred years, maybe more, of grace to God. And then he wasn't the only one. I, I assume that his son Methuselah would have been, and Lamech also, I believe. But Noah certainly was. He was, Peter says, a preacher of righteousness. So you had the message going out that all you have to do is get on the boat. There's going to be a worldwide flood. Now, nobody had ever seen a flood before, and the word that they used in the Hebrew was the word mabul. Now, there's another word for a local flood. Mabul is the only, is only used to describe Noah's flood. And so they're talking about there's a great mabul coming, and that made no sense to them. They had never seen one. They had never seen rain any more than you have ever heard that word before. And so it didn't mean anything to them. And they'd say, well, what's that? And he would describe what was going to happen and that this is why he was building an ark and that God had told him. And the only way to survive was going to be to get, uh, to get on, on the ark. So there were, there was a precise message given and not one person responded. Well, I can't say that because there could have been some who responded, but they died before the flood. Like Methuselah. Methuselah was a believer, but Methuselah died before the flood. So, and, and the same with Lamech. He died before the flood. So there were other believers, and there may have been others who had responded to the message, but by the time the flood came, there were only eight people who possessed righteousness, and that was Noah and his family. They had to have two qualifications. Number one, possess righteousness. And number two, uh, they were from a bloodline that was uh, pure humanity because of the uh, infiltration of the sons of God, the angels, uh, the fallen angels who had intermarried with human beings. Now, that doesn't mean everyone has that problem, but it means that it had reached a critical mass where God had to stop it. You just have to think that through a little bit. But... Um, you know, when you're teaching younger kids, that's not necessarily something you do. So in Second Peter 2.5, Peter says that God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness. Now, 
See, I this is the New Living Translation, and I've put it up there just to kind of have a foil here. They translated this preacher of righteousness as Noah warned the world of God's righteous judgment. I don't think so. I think Noah is righteous because he, like Abraham later on, believed God and it was imputed to him as righteousness. And he's preaching that's the gospel. You have to be righteous to be saved by God, and that means you have to trust in his promise of a future Savior. So I would take that as a preacher of righteousness, that righteousness is what he's preaching about, is how to become righteous. So that is a better translation uh, of the uh, grammar there in Second Peter 2.5. So what we see in this principle of grace before judgment is for some seven, maybe 800 years, you have the proclamation of this coming judgment and the warning, and grace again and again and again and again, and uh, then the judgment comes. And we've seen a lot of warnings in this nation over the last um, century, of what will happen because the, the, the departure from the truth of God's word began in the 19th century with Protestant liberalism, Darwinism, and the rise of almighty uh, science. So God's judgment is stated in Genesis 6-3, My spirit shall not remain with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. And I pointed out last time the Hebrew word translated remain is only used one time. King James translators translated it strive, but just as you have uh, words, um, we have words in English like the word amorous, but if you look at the root AMO, that comes out of Latin for love. You also have amor, amore, Italian, and French, and Spanish, and all of these are just related languages. So we can look at the word that in the Hebrew that's translated there. It's only used one time in the scriptures. But the related words in Arabic and Akkadian and um, uh, Ugaritic, which is a form of Canaanite, and these other languages all have this root. But there, in those other languages, they all have the idea of remaining or abiding. So that needs to be translated remaining. I think God was still had a temple, tabernacle, temple, a dwelling place in the Garden of Eden. But after the flood, that, that place no longer existed. The reason that... that um, Noah is saved as God. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and he responded to God's grace. And so we have to recognize that um, uh, some of the English Bibles translated favor, but the idea is grace. It is unmerited favor. It's not just favor. God didn't say, oh, I like Noah. I'm going to let him live. Noah is a preacher of righteousness. Noah had imputed righteousness, just as Abraham will by the time we get into Genesis chapter 15 uh, and see that in, in Genesis 1-6. So there's a long time that goes by from Enoch to the flood, and God is going to be gracious to Noah, not just in saving him eternally, 
but delivering him and his family physically from the flood so that they will be the new Adam. He and his wife will be the new Adam and Eve. They will reboot the human race. There's going to hit that restart button, and everybody, everybody in this room, everybody who ever watches this video, all can trace their line back to Noah. Everybody thinks, well, and trace it back to Adam. Well, sure you can, but you've got to all go through Noah first. Second uh, Peter 3.9 is a verse that emphasizes the long-suffering, the patience of God. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. That in the context, Peter is warning about the future judgment of God, but he relates it back to God's judgment at the flood and saying that just like then, uh, now people are saying, well, where's the promise of his coming? And uh, everything just goes on like it always has and nothing changes and it's been a long time, so he's really not coming. And Peter says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, grace before judgment, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so God continues to allow things to go on. People often say, well, uh, why is there so much suffering? Why doesn't God stop all this? Why doesn't God intervene? There's wars and famines and everything else because God desires to see as many saved as possible to continue to extend the gospel to any and all. And that is the same thing that was happening prior to, uh, uh, prior to the flood. So for, if you go back to when Enoch is proclaiming that message, you've got, you're going back seven or eight hundred years that God uh, held off in destroying the uh, human race. Second thing that we're looking at is the question of who to save and who to judge. And so all of those who are saved are inside the ark, and all of those who are judged are outside of the ark. It is God who decided what the means was, but he gave people the opportunity to make a decision about whether they would go into the ark or not. There's no secret plan. There's no, no one is confused. Every, Noah and the others made it very, very clear. And even though there had never been any rain before, ne- never been a flood before, uh, Noah was given specific instructions by God on to how to build the ark. God is omniscient. He knew exactly what was necessary for this ship to weather all storms and waves. Some of those tsunamis were are estimated to have moved at a, over 150 miles an hour. Can you imagine you get the arc pointed in front of that? It'd be like a massive uh, surfboard, and you're just riding the wave of all waves at 150, 175 miles an hour. But God's hand was on it, so God was protecting everyone inside of the ship. He had designed it and built it so that it could survive uh, whatever uh, whatever came. 
So God determined who to save, gave, and the message went out. Those who will enter the ark will be saved. Those who do not will not be saved. Everybody had their own choice to make. Third thing we see is that there's only one way of salvation. Only one way of salvation. That was in the ark, and only one way to enter the ark, and that was through the one door. And so you have Noah, who is the representative of the human race, as the underlord of God, who is bringing the animals there so that all of these animals uh, contain the DNA to rebuild the, the, the animals, uh, insects, all the air-breathing creatures uh, on, on the ark. So a lot of people ask, well, well, how could they get all of those animals on there? Well, we'll talk about that a little later on. And there's a lot, been a lot of discussion and a lot of study on that over the years. And uh, we'll talk about that a little bit. But there was more than enough room. There was enough room for all of the kinds. And a kind, biblical kind, is not a species. I mean, I, I heard that when I was a kid, that this is species. No, it's, it's much broader than that. Because you have to have, you have to have animals that can, uh, breed together. And so you can have, like you have, there was some sort of dog kind. And we have wolves and we have coyotes, we have German shepherds and chihuahuas. But they're all part of the dog kind, which is probably at the family level. And it's interesting, I was reading an article on answers in Genesis over the weekend, and the question that they were addressing, are cheetahs really part of the cat kind? Because there's some interesting distinctions with cheetahs in Africa, and it has to do with the way that line was isolated following, uh, following the flood. You can go to answers in Genesis and read all about it. But I thought one of the things I thought that was interesting is that you have a lot of different cat kinds, everything from your favorite little little cat all the way to a lion, leopards, cheetahs, um, all kinds of ocelots. You've got jaguars down in Central and South America. You've got just a huge number of cats. Now, some cats species can interbreed with other cats. So we'll say group A can interbreed with group B, but they can't interbreed with group C. But group B can interbreed with group C. So you have just, you know, let spread that out to where you have 30, 40, 50 different species today of cats, felines, and so at some level, they can all interbreed with certain other in the feline, but not all of them. So all of those would originally be traced back to the cat kind, and those two cats went on the ark. So God is overseeing all of this DNA distribution. He knows how to, how to do, how to do that. And there may not have been as much of a, uh, uh, distinction in the ancient world as there is after they all got off of the ark. You may not ha- have had um, so many different kinds of species and subspecies. So when he built the ark, the instructions were a male and female of each kind entered. Now there were, it's that would be another good question: is that 
that how many of each kind did did uh, Noah take on the ark? A lot of people say, well, there, it was two. No, it was seven of every clean and two of every unclean. Why the odd number of the seven? Because the clean animals could be used for sacrifice, and the seventh one was the sacrifice. When they got off the ark, the seventh one was part of the sacrifices that they that they made when they built built an altar. So male and female of each kind entered just as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord closed the door behind them. He shut them in and closed it, sealed it, so they're protected. Nothing could hurt them. God is protecting them. That is a wonderful picture of our security and our salvation. God knows all of the things that can attack us, but he has sealed us just as he sealed the door on the ark. We are sealed by God the Holy Spirit, and so there can be no loss of salvation. We are totally protected by the Lord. Now, the next issue was, are there many ways to be saved? You see, we live in a world where people would like to have many different ways, many different options dependent upon their particular choice. Well, I think it ought to be this way. I think there ought to be a lot of diversity so anybody can go to heaven on any reason they know. God has to can't be against diversity. And so he isn't against diversity. Look at everything in God's creation. And there's going to be all kinds of people in heaven. It's just going to be remarkable because salvation is for all without distinction on race or uh, ethnicity or skin color or anything else. And so God is the one who is designs uh, what the basis is for going to heaven. But people today want a lot of options They want it to be morality that if I'm a good person, well, how do you define good? Where do you get the word good? You know, you go down to, you go into some subcultures in this country, criminal subcultures, good and bad are completely reversed. So who defines good? Well, only God can define good. And so people think that it's karma, that it's fatalism, that it's any religion as long as you're sincere. Uh, donations, how much money you give to the organization. Basically, everybody, most people believe in a do-it-yourself salvation. But God says oh, he's the only one who can do it and provide for it. So uh, just at that time, the Bible said that there's only one way uh, to salvation, and the pagan worldview says you can do good, any religion, um, God is love, so everyone goes to heaven, but God makes the rules, we don't. You know, because of our sin nature, we want permissiveness. We want oh, God to just be this old man in heaven who says, tut, 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 too bad, well, you just have a sin nature, but you're, you're, you're sincere, and you'll go to you'll go to heaven. So this is um, not what God did. He he defines what is acceptable to him and what is not acceptable to him, 
and who will be saved and who will uh, not be saved. So do-it-yourself salvation kits are not to be passed around. They don't work. When we look at the flood as a judgment, God's judgment is a global flood. And uh, since he's the only one who knows what a global flood looks like, only he can provide the solution of how to survive the flood. All man-made solutions would fail. I wonder how many people are trying to make rafts or make some sort of uh, boat at the last minute and trying to escape, and it didn't work for anyone. Now, the next point is on the, um, this is on page 7 of uh, Lesson 5. This is how the world changed, and the world changed is in incredible ways. When God sent this global flood, we have a very difficult time imagining the power of that much water. Some of you have been to places that have been flooded. When I was in seminary, I used to go down and uh, go to a place down near um, down near Kerrville, and that's the upper waters of the Guadalupe. And one summer, one spring maybe, I can't remember what time of year it was, there was a massive flood, and there was a... Uh, Keswick camp for kids, Christian camp for kids, uh, um, back in this one area. And uh, to get there, you had to cross a low water bridge. And this bridge washed out. The water was about 30 feet high, and a the camp bus was crossing uh, on that bridge when the flash flood hit. And so there were a number of kids killed. And I went down there frequently enough to know where I knew what the topography around that that area on that river looked like. And nothing looked familiar the next time I went down there. The the landscape, the just the how the direction the creek ran or how it ran completely changed. And that's just one very small uh, river in Texas. This isn't the Guadalupe as you see it a little further down. This is just one of the uh, rivers and the uh, uh, tributaries in the uh, upper upper area. And it just it's it's it, water is powerful, and you're multiplying that probably a million fold at least, probably much more, to see the power where every all of the land on the planet is covered to at least. 22 feet, the scripture says, to at least 22 feet, 15 cubits. A cubit is about a foot and a half. So at least 22 feet, the text says. And that, and that, it stays that high for a, for 110 days. You have the initial part where the water is, uh, the, the fountains of the deep have, have opened, the windows of heaven have opened, and then um, as, as the waters rise and they churn, you, you would have tsunamis moving 150 miles an hour. You have the breakup of the tectonic plates. We saw some of that in that little uh, short video I showed last time. I hope some of you take the time to find one of the lar- longer ones to watch. But it gives you an idea of the incredible power 
and we'll uh, we'll talk about some other examples as we go through this. But one example that they use somewhere in the in the in the notes in Interlock is that when Krakatoa, which was down around Sumatra, I believe, um, my geography gets a little weak with the various islands in uh, Southeast Asia. But um, when Krakatoa blew in the 19th century, the explosion was so powerful that it actually shifted to a just a minor degree. It shifted uh, the axis of the Earth. And that's just one volcano. And um, we'll get to a clip I took from when Steve Austin was here at the Chafer Conference years ago. Oh, no, it was 2016. And he's got a great animation of uh, Mount St. Helens, and we'll show that. But you just imagine that there were tens of thousands under the water and on dry ground that were exploding with that force at the same time. What impact would that have on the whole planet? It, it, it boggles our mind. We can't imagine anything like that. So in Genesis seven seventeen through 24, we read, Now the flood was on the earth 40 days. So that's talking about the rain. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. The waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark moved about on the surface of the water. So what that's talking about is all of this churning that's going on all over the earth. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevail 15 cubits, that's about 22 feet at least, and the mountains were covered, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Now that includes the 40 days and 40 nights. So this tells us how the world changed in ways that uh, could not could not really be be imagined. In Peter, Second Peter, we read, For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water. So that's, that's like today. Uh, I'm not, excuse me, it is not like today. Because when you go back to Genesis chapter 2, um, chapter 1, um, we read that God separates the waters, so the waters above and waters below. And the waters below he calls oceans. So there's some, the, up in the, up, up, way above the earth. Now, there was the theory for many years that this was some sort of water vapor canopy. But, uh, Jody Dillo, who was, uh, uh, in the doctoral program when I was a student, had an engineering background and in conjunction with, um, a third reader, I believe, from the, um, from the science department over at SMU, he worked through the all of the calculations as to what the Earth's temperature would be like if there were a water vapor canopy like Venus. And the conclusion was that now it would have been way too hot on the surface of the planet. So we don't know how how far out. It just says that God 
took this water and moved it above the earth. And that's the water that comes down when the windows of heaven are, are opened. And, um, Peter talks about this and says that, um, they willfully forget this, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished. So you have world one. Okay. That is from Genesis one, two to, um, uh, to Genesis six. And then you have, uh, that, that world perished. It was totally destroyed being flooded with water. And then he says, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word. See, see, people get all upset about all kinds of global warming or climate change. The climate's always changing. All of these other things that are going on. And yet we as believers ought to relax about all of this. All this gloom and doom that they say, because we're told in Scripture here in Colossians that God preserves the earth. He is the one that it's preserved by his word, his power, and they're reserved for fire, which comes at the last judgment. So what Peter tells us is that they deliberately forget. That means that they know the truth, but they suppressed it. That's what Paul says in Romans 1, that they suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. And so they deny uh, the reality of, um, of what God has said and God's power to maintain the earth. And their, their view is that, that uh, we have to take care of it. There's nothing we can do to take care of it. Not one thing that any human being can can do. And uh, I've said this before, that a good assignment for your kids is to research volcanoes as to what is blown into the atmosphere with a volcanic eruption. All of the gases and all of the chemicals and all of the things that go into the atmosphere and what... Uh, what the consequences of that are and compare that to what is produced by a, uh, by all of, all human beings since the beginning of the industrial revolution. And more stuff is thrown into the atmosphere, uh, from these volcano, from just one volcano than every human being has produced since, uh, the beginning of the uh, industrial revolution. And we've had hundreds and hundreds of volcanoes over the years. So we have to rely on God to preserve the planet. Now, there are some people who think there's no connection between spiritual things and the physical world. And I've heard people, I've heard people in doctrinal churches say this, that, 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 that there's no connection. And yet we have passages in scripture, which I've usually pointed out, that in the in Leviticus 26, with the five cycles of discipline, God says that if you are you violate my covenant, if you worship other gods, it'll stop raining, and you'll and the ground will be like um, like bronze, and the earth and the sky like iron. Maybe it's reversed, but it's just the ground becomes hard, 
The sky doesn't give any rain. And, and, and there's a cause and effect there. God is saying your spiritual condition has an impact on meteorology and on other, other factors. It can cause famines and droughts, many, many other things. So there is a connection. The connection is because God is the sustainer and controller of meteorology and he, and, and the earth. Remember, God's original design was for the human race to responsibly care for and utilize the various resources of the planet. He created those resources. We think of the resources from petroleum products to uh, lumber to water to all of the various things that can be domesticated and grown by far- farmers. God created all of that uh, with with a purpose, and man was to responsibly care for that as the underlord. So, but what happened was sin. All of creation was damaged by sin. And there you, you have a spiritual decision leads to physical consequences. The serpent has to crawl on his belly. You had the development of of gastrointestinal systems uh, so that they could uh, handle eating meat. You had the development of carnivores. No carnivores before Genesis 3. Uh, all of that changed. And so no matter how you stack up all of the damage that man has done uh, to creation, all of the pollution, all of the emissions of various gases, the strip mining, the logging, all of these things, They don't add up to anything close to what happened to the planet when Eve ate the fruit and Adam ate the fruit. That changed everything. And I've gone, the last couple of lessons, we've gone through Romans 8, starting in 19 down to 22, but I'm just quoting 8, 21 and 22 here, that the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. God didn't create it in bondage of corruption. That's the result of Adam's original sin. Uh, from the bondage of corruption, and in verse 22, for we know that the whole creation, that includes the furthest galaxies, everything God created has been impacted by sin. Sin isn't just this, well, I just made a mistake. Or I just let my lust get a, get a, a handle on me. I just got angry, and that's a sin. The sin of that little tiny sin of eating a piece of fruit in disobedience to God changed the physical nature of all of the universe, not just Adam and Eve. And that's something to, to really ponder and think about. So everything is impacted uh, by sin. Spiritual decisions affect physical reality. And then the fifth thing is how to be saved. How do we say we're saved by faith? Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verse 7 says, by faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen. Nobody had seen a flood. Nobody had seen it rain. By things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household. 
by which he condemned the world. The very You condemned the world by the very act of your coming to Bible class to study God's word as a statement of judgment and condemnation on the rest of the world. The fact that Noah did what God wanted him to do was a condemnation of the rest of the world. And uh, so he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So those are the five things we learn. And we learn these five things every time we go through these different episodes. From We'll get to episodes with the Exodus in, um, as God frees the Jews. We see it time and time again in the history of Israel. Uh, we see it at the time of Christ. We'll see it in the tribulation. All of these things that uh, were always saved by faith, all of these are there. So there's five lessons that we learn from the flood. And we can either look at things that are happening in our world around us and doubt God's control and panic. And there's a lot that you could panic about. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of chaos. There's a lot of, uh, there are people like the, this governor in New Mexico who just autocratically uh, passed an executive order to, uh, to say to take away Second Amendment rights. Uh, no one who even who legally possesses a, a, a right to carry, uh, concealed or not, uh, can can use that. Anybody carrying a firearm in Albuquerque and Albuquerque in the county that Albuquerque's in over the next uh, thirty days is liable to to punishment. The problem is everybody, even some of the most radical anti-gun people in the country, say that she stepped over the line and there's no basis for this in the Constitution. But she's pushing it. And so that's that's a real problem. And if, if um, Gavin Newsom in California thought he could get away with it, he would do it. And there are other governors that would do it because they want to control people. And so this could change tomorrow, but we're not quite there yet. But God's in control. We have to learn to trust him. We can't put our focus on the waves and the circumstances and the uh, tyrants who want to control us. We have to put it on God and focus upon him. So these five lessons, grace before judgment, 120-year grace period, Enoch was warned, Noah was warned. Second, the second lesson is there's always a decision. Who is saved? Who is judged? And those who are saved are those who have, who obey God, and those who are judged are those who aren't. Third, there's only one way of salvation, and that's what God says, not what man says. Fourth, the world changed. The global flood changed the whole world. The tribulation It's going to change the world again. Maybe not to the same degree, but it will change it again. And then the issue of salvation is salvation is always by faith alone in the promise of God. Now, the promise of God shifts. Before the cross, the promise is that God will provide a Savior And by trusting in that promise, you will be given God's righteousness. 
after the cross, we look back, it's more specific because we now know who the Messiah is and we trust in him. So the ark is a picture of salvation. How does God judge and save? It's the ark. It's one way, God's way. And that's a picture of how Jesus judges and saves. So this takes us down to page 10 in Lesson 5, and I want to cover one more area before we wrap it up. And that's answering the question. This is in the box at the bottom of page 10. And this is the question, was there such a thing as a worldwide flood? Was there such a thing as a worldwide flood that destroyed the earth? Now, remember, we have, we introduced a topic of those who assimilated are, are, they, they compromise biblical truth with science. So they either, uh, merged it in, they came up with some ways to not literally interpret the Bible. And so they did various things to add ages and years. And the basic question is, what reason do you have for adding long periods of time? We'll talk about that next time. But wh- why do you feel the necessity to add uh, 50,000, 100,000, 100 million, 100 billion years to the history of the planet? Only because science comes up with it. And what are their presuppositions? We touched on it in Second Peter uh, chapter 3, that the scoffers will come, say, where's the promise of his coming? Uh, everything continues as it always has. That articulates the principle of uniformitarianism which is that because uh, we see certain uh, decay rates in various chemicals today, uh, then we can extrapolate back and we can assume that it's always decayed at that same rate and that there were no catastrophes. Nothing changed anything. And so we can go back and we can extrapolate. But what we'll see is that there's a lot of things that that don't quite hold up because you can look at different chemical compounds that are breaking down and they end up with conflicting ages for the, for, for the earth. So uh, one thing that we know uh, that we have as evidence is the existence of pagan accounts of a big flood. Nearly every culture, every civilization, every tribe in the most remote parts of the jungle have some story about a worldwide flood in antiquity and that this, uh, and that there were various ways that, su- that the people were saved and it's all sort of been, uh, muddied over. You, I, I, they call this different things in different parts of the country. Uh, I grew up hearing it called gossip. Some people call it telephone where you get in a circle, you have 20 people, and you have something that you're saying, just a short phrase, and you whisper it to the person next to you, and then they whisper it to the person next to them. And it goes all the way around the circle, and when it gets to the end, uh, they say what it is, and it bears no resemblance to, to what uh, to what started. And so after the flood, you have um, Noah and his children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren began to spread out 
And then about 200 years later, there's the Tower of Babel incident where the languages are confused, and then people are split up into different groups. And as they get further uh, away from anyone with the truth of God's, God's revelation, then what happens is they, they start to change the stories. And, um, and it's interesting. There is a book I have. I have the English translation of a six-volume French work that was written by a Jesuit priest who was an anthropologist, and he published this six-volume work back in the early 20th century. And he investigated every known tribe, every known culture, every known civilization in the history of mankind and traced back their uh, original religious belief systems. And what he discovered is Everyone, without exception, started with a single God, and then it deteriorated from there. And that monotheism is the earliest religion. Now, that's not what evolution says. That's not what your sociology professor in school will say, because they're willingly ignorant of works like this. And they're out, th- and they're out there. But they're all, they're just ignored. They are willfully ignorant of these things. But you have all of these descendants of Noah, and as they scattered, they just embellished on the truth. Things changed from generation to gener- generation. And so we have that as evidence of a, of a worldwide flood. Second is we get into the issue of the depth of the flood water and the duration of the flood. And I'm going to stop here because that's going to take us some time to go through the material that I have for that, and we'll come back and look at that uh, next time. But the key is to think your way through those five things that we talked about in terms of understanding the dynamics of the flood, and, uh, and so, as it, especially as it relates to ju- judgment and salvation. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be together, to study your word, to be reminded of its truthfulness, its veracity, that the world around us again and again is suppressing truth. We see it now in in ways we never saw it before. There's no desire for objectivity. There's no sense of absolute truth. Everybody's just making up their own stories uh, to get money, to get success, to get prestige, to control people, doesn't matter. We can we don't even know what to trust anymore. But the one thing we can trust is your word, that it is absolutely true, and that we need to judge everything in our lives by your word, and not by science, not by how many degrees somebody has or how many laboratories did X, Y, or Z. It is your word that is the basis for absolute truth, and everything needs to be evaluated by your word and not the other way around. So, Father, strengthen our understanding of your word, of the truth of your word, and our ability to articulate this to those that we get the opportunity to. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.